Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, hey, that is where he's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, Damon Mann. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years at the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is our two at a radio program. Just a reminder. Anything you hear, you want to discuss with me, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and we'll keep this an interactive program as usual. But what we're going to do is we're going to start out with an interview that I recorded with former Major League catcher Brian Dorsett. Now, Brian had a chance to play uh, you know, professionally from uh, around you know, the 80s to the early mid part of the 90s and was with organizations like Cleveland and Oakland and New York Yankees, uh, the Cincinnati Reds, the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, and you know, had some ups and downs. Here's a guy that was a... He, he was a catcher all the way throughout, but had an injury early on in the uh, mid part of the '80s that kind of held him back a little bit. But you know, you, if you look at if you look it up and you see the numbers they put up in the minor leagues, they were very good numbers. And in the mid '80s, had a chance to play for some very good double and triple A teams in the Oakland Athletics organization. They had guys like Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire and Stan Javier. Luis Polonia, Tim Belcher, just to name a few of the players that were on those teams. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League catcher Brian Dorsett. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Brian Dorsett. Brian, what's going on, man? Hey, not much. Great to be with you uh, today. Looking forward to the uh, conversation. No, definitely, man. Definitely. And, of course, you know, you had an opportunity to play in the Major Leagues over the course of, the course of several seasons. And you know, kind of, kind of covered the better part of a decade. Uh, you know, before we get into specifics, um, tell tell listeners what your opinions were, or what you really take back from your experience in the major leagues. Uh, you know, what I think more than anything is a journey. Um, you're not really aware of what all goes on when you're young. Trying to think about you know what the minor leagues mean and how long it's actually possibly going to take you to get to the major leagues. So that's that's certainly a uh, eye-opener when you kind of begin to trek upward and have to deal with injuries and, and going through different organizations and finding out you know what they're all about and how similar they are to each other, uh, how different some of them are from one another, the way people view things uh, within. Things that I was able to take from it and learn from it are pretty amazing, I think, for uh, the rest of my life. Um, but uh, the leagues were just as much fun as the major leagues, believe, uh, believe it or not. And uh, I, I think it was just a great journey that I wouldn't trade for uh, anything, really. No, I tell you, you know, you, you know, some of the years you had, you know, through, throughout, you know, uh, you know, the lower parts and even in AAA and the minor leagues, you performed very well. And I tell you, the, you know, the numbers you put up for a catcher in, in the minor leagues, uh, you know, if they could have transferred into the majors, I mean, you could have been a pretty good everyday catcher. <laughs> well. That. I, I kind of fooled them for a long time. Like I had a knee injury in 19, uh, spring training of 1986. And, uh, you know, it became difficult for me after that because, I don't know, that that right knee that just wasn't allowing me to have that flexibility in it anymore. Uh, I even had you know, four or five subsequent surgeries. But for whatever reason, the flexibility in that knee was hard. To attain again without having any kind of pain, uh, 
know, and, and just having it at the back of my mind, kind of wore you out a little bit, but I kind of got through it and learned how to compete with it, learned how to change people's ideas and opinions on me, both defensively, offensively, at different times in my career. Um, so I think more importantly, I, I, I guess, it was the persistence that I'm most proud of. And uh, I know I could have been a, a really good everyday player in the big leagues. It was just a matter of, you know, guys getting their opportunities. And I think I have a lot to give back, you know, when talking to players about that journey or even front office about, you know, how players really feel when they're going through that or respond to that. And uh, I welcome that. You know, it's not something I do often, but would welcome that at any time. And was able to kind of give back, I think, uh, for about three years, I was a manager in the Prospect League, which is summer uh, baseball, played with a wooden bat, and uh, just had a ball doing that. So I was able to really, you know, interject some of those philosophies and thoughts uh, to some of the players that are, you know, going up through uh, college ranks. We've already had about 13 guys go pro, so I was able to stay close to it that way, and I've always enjoyed the game away from uh, uh, getting out of the professional uh, ranks as a player. I, I stayed close to it. And, have businesses, but I've always loved the game enough to stay close to it that way. No, very true, man. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here for Major League Catcher Brian Dorsett. Now, you know, you were drafted by the Oakland Athletics. You end up, you know, bouncing around a couple different organizations, you know, from Oakland to Cleveland to California to the Yankees. Was was there ever any particular time or a particular organization you were with where you really thought you were going to get a legitimate chance? Uh, I would think Oakland. Until uh, I got traded. Like I said, I was hurt in spring training, so they did not see the recovery, um, and I think it was easy for them to get, you know, make that move to me and Daryl Ackerfels because of that. Uh, that was looking back on. I understand it, um, uh, but that's that's coming up to that, you know, with that team, that organization. Um, we had a lot of prospects. I think a lot, twelve or thirteen guys off our Double A team made it to the major leagues. That, that first team you're always with seems to be the one you just love for initially. And, and then as you go along and you become a big leaguer somewhere else, uh, you start feeling confident there and appreciate that opportunity. And, you know, front offices change, managers change. So it's hard to really hang your hat and call it home. But uh, I think that first organization was pretty special. And then, of course, uh, the tradition of the Yankees was really special. Uh, being in Cincinnati was great for three years, but uh, you know it all changes. You know you, you realize you're as a, as a professional, you are just uh, another guy that you know their organization that they're looking for uh, results from, and you have to perform. And when you don't, and you're injured, you know you become a uh, I guess an easily uh, easily marked to, to move. And in this case, uh, it was it was true for me. Yeah, I tell you, you look back at that uh, 1986 Tacoma team, and you know you, you really you really did have some very good major league power there with, you know, Mark McGuire, Stan Javier, and uh, you know Len Sakata, Luis Polonia, uh, Mike Gallego. You're looking at a you know whole series of players that end up becoming legitimate major league players. Check this out: our Double A team had Stan Javier, Lou Pol- Louis Polonia, Mark McGuire. Uh, I'm sorry, not Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, uh, Robbie Nelson, Daryl Ackerfeld, Tim Belcher, uh, oh, Terry Steinbach. Steinbach was actually my backup. Wow. He was just learning how to catch. He would DH and he'd catch a little. Uh, the following year, he went back to AA and just tore it up. He had like, he had like 320, with almost 130 RBIs and 20-some home runs, so he jumped over me after he had that year, and that's spring training year I got hurt. Um, my year, AAA wasn't bad, but again, I was I was trying to fool him, and uh, actually was trying to fool him, I think, the rest of my career with that injury that I'd had, but was able to overcome it, felt like I was playing on about one and a half legs at times, but you learn how to be smart, you know, and just get it done, and work around your weaknesses, and, and uh, it was a great learning experience for you. Yeah, I tell you, one, a lot of thing, a lot of people don't even realize that before Mark McGuire came up, the uh, the Oakland Athletics were a lot higher on Rob Nelson as as you know being their potential first baseman of the future, and you know somewhere along the line, uh, 
you know, McGuire proved himself to be a little a little better of a commodity. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize they had actually started playing McGuire at third base. Yeah. McGuire played a full, almost a full season at third base uh, in Rob Nelson because of Rob Nelson being at first base. Uh, I'll never forget in spring training, McGuire was so frustrated that he was considering, he was so frustrated he was considering getting out of the game. Yeah. Uh, he had had enough, and he was contemplating going into law enforcement. It's a little known fact. A lot of people don't know that, but it's kind of that's the truth. Uh, but he had moved to third base and hated it. So they ended up moving into first base, and he loved it. Became Phil Glover. Yeah, and I guess the rest is history, right? <laughs> no doubt. And, and you know, onto your time with the Yankees. Of course, you know, uh, play you know playing in New York. I'm sure is uh, you know is kind of different than playing you know in a lot of other different cities. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the Yankees. I know the Yankees were we were going through a rough time in '89 and '90, but you know, what was it like being part of those Yankee teams, and you know, just kind of the whole Yankee mystique that kind of follows you where you go. Well, I think it was first class. And that's that's what sticks out. I mean, playing with Mattingly, uh, Steve Sachs, Barfield, Rigetti, Goose Gossage. Um, we had names on that team. You know, some of those guys were at the end of their career. Uh, Winfield was there my first year. Um, so I mean, there were some names, but, you know, it just wasn't, you know, wasn't one of those things that was, they were able to really put together and have the chemistry that they, that they had later, Steinbrenner. You know, would move managers around and was looking for that recipe. Uh, he finally found it. You know, in the late '90s. Uh, you know, on a more consistent basis. But you know, just like they are now, first-class organization. Uh, you know, I just admired the way they went about their business. Yeah, I tell you, as you as you move forward, you end up in a Pirates organization. You know, you end up driving in over 100 runs in the 1992 season with Buffalo. Um, you know, at that point, were you were you over your injuries, or were you still trying to you know trying to fool people to think that you were you were one hundred percent? Yeah, no, I wasn't over them at all. My my knee was uh, was I mean I was you know able to catch. I'd sit more on my left side because my right side you know the right knee just didn't have the flexibility and to get that you know you squat you get that extra pop or it just kind of clicks. And, and it feels good, you know. It, it would never do that again after '86. So, uh, you know, I was—I still had it, but I was able to play through it. Sat mostly on my left side. As long as I was in the up position, the block position, or you know, trying to throw somebody out, I was fine. Where it killed me was giving signs, you know, being in that spot. And uh, uh, so I just sit more on my left side, and you know, take some ibuprofen and you know, help to mask it. But after that year, what I wanted to do was go to Japan, and um, I went to spring training with the Reds, I was the last guy cut, and uh, really kind of thought about going back to Buffalo, because I love playing there, the big crowds, and Jim Bowden assured me that I'd be a big leaguer and make more money, just give me, you know, just give me some time, Brian, get me up here, so I broke camp uh, with AAA, and uh, was actually on pace to have a bigger year, I think I had 59 RBIs, and 16 home runs with uh, was hitting 299. They called me up on on uh, I think it was June 30th or something, and uh, stayed with that you know stayed with the Reds the whole year from there, and then made the ball club, stayed with them the whole rest you know the next year. But my goal was to go on and play with those big numbers that I was putting up the second year in Indianapolis, or the first year in Indianapolis, second year in a row of having big numbers. I was hoping to go to Japan. So when I got called up, I was a little disappointed to be honest because. I knew I could go over there and DH or play first base. Um, they don't really bring catchers over there because of the language barrier. Um, but anyway, I, I, I was kind of disappointed. But you know, once I got up there, Dave Johnson was the manager with Cincinnati. Uh, they had Ray Knight, uh, Bob Boone, all those guys. I really liked it. And was glad I was uh, able to you know, enjoy that. Yeah, and I tell you, man, now, you know, as, as you go forward, I mean, you, you, know, you, you end up having a pretty good professional career. Uh, do you do you think that you know do you, do you, do you kind of wish that you would have gotten a chance to play in Japan maybe or you know were, were you kind of happy with the way things ended up turning out? I'm happy with the, the way they ended up, but I would have at the time financially I think it would have been more fun. Uh, you know, you go over there and put some big numbers up, have three or four years, and you walk away probably with a lot more money than I would have. Uh, but that's that goes without saying when you're a backup in the big leagues. You know, it's not a, you're not going to make a ton. 
of course now you've got you know minimum wages what minimum salary is four hundred fifty thousand or something yeah. and uh you know it's unbelievable now the opportunities they have so it wasn't that way uh i think at the time when i left it was like 280 minimum salary but you know it's one of those things where thankful for the opportunity and i know that uh Indeed, God had a purpose and, and a plan you know, through the whole point. No, very true. Listen, Brian, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate you being part of our program, and let's stay in touch, man. Maybe I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Anytime. I uh, really appreciate being on here with you. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, man. So there it was, a little spot there where Brian said, Of course, Brian played, and I actually remember him playing for the Yankees in the uh, 89 and 90 seasons. And, of course, those were not two good years for the New York Yankees, but – you know, as a, as a kid, you know, I told I tell a story all the time. Being a big Met fan, I didn't have the uh, full cable package, so I couldn't see the Met games on uh, Sports Channel. And you know, I would watch any game that I could. And you know, the Yankees were always on Channel 11. You had the Phillies on 17, the Braves on uh, you know, whatever channel they were on. And you know, I, I just watched as much baseball as I possibly could. So I had a good chance to see you know a little bit of Brian Dorsett. But a guy, I tell you, you look at BaseballReference.com, pull up his stats as a catcher in the minor leagues and he put up some you know ridiculous numbers and you know you figure you know maybe if it wasn't for his injury he would have had more of a chance to have more of an impact in the major league level but uh, once again john pielli passball show mtr radio network we'll take our first break of this hour we'll be back with a lot more after this five five four four three three two You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, and we're going to jump right into the next interview I recorded with former Major League shortstop Steve Jeltz. Now, Steve had a chance to play for the Philadelphia Phillies through the better part of the 1980s and was a teammate of Glenn Wilson, who you heard in the first hour of the show. Now, Jeltz was a very good defensive shortstop, um, a guy who could hit for some power but didn't really in the majors, and he tells you exactly why as far as having his role and uh, you know, being that number eight hitter slash defensive-minded shortstop. But one thing that interests me is he tells you the story about how he actually became a switch hitter in the middle of his career. Between the 1985 and 1986 season, he became a switch hitter for the first time in his career. Not only that, but learned how to bat left-handed in one offseason. Now you look at left-hand hitters that may learn how to bat right-handed. You know, you, you, you know the majority of the pitchers are going to pitch righty. So to totally switch up and become a primarily a left-hand batter, against right-hand pitching is something significant. And he tells you exactly the reason why he did that. So we're going to get into this interview with Steve Jeltz. Hopefully you guys enjoy it, and we'll be back on the other side. Hey, good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League infielder Steve Jeltz. Steve, thanks for having a couple minutes today. My pleasure. 
Yeah, Steve, now, you know, you obviously had a you know a nice career for the better part of the 80s. You came up as, as a shortstop. And I'll tell you, one thing that I want to get into is the, uh, the, the importance of defense, which really was, was a lot more prevalent in the 80s and before that than it is now. Tell us a little bit about coming coming up to the majors and being you know taking a pride in playing you know a good defensive shortstop. Well, I think uh, the, the most important thing about the game is your pitching and your defense. And uh, uh, when I came up with the Phillies in 1983, um, I came up basically around a, a ball club that was pretty much formed. And uh, my first start was when I left D.C. Carlton and. Um, let's see. Will get to drink. He came to me the night before and told me get ready for to start tomorrow. Um, but they saw I worked and, and you know, fortunately, I left on the Lord. I had pretty good hands and pretty good feet and, and was able to uh, play defense. Um, that was um, acceptable for the Hall of Famer as I was playing around. You know, Mike Sale was my third baseman, uh, Joe Warren was my second baseman, and Pete Rose was my first baseman. So it was quite a role to play there, and uh, it made it pretty easy on me when I came into the game. So I think I was fortunate in that aspect. Yeah, very true, man. And of course, you, you mentioned you came up in 1983, and you know, 1983, a significant year for the Phillies. Uh, like you mentioned, all the veterans they had, you know, and they ended up making a World Series that season. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your feelings of being part of that team. And you know, I know, you know, you kind of you kind of came up as, uh, you know, as a guy just making your debut then. But uh, tell us a little bit about your experience getting a chance to play with playing with those veteran players and kind of being part of that ride for the 1983 season. Well, you know, it was. It was a special time. Um, you had uh, Sarge and uh, Gary Matthews and Matt Ox out there, and uh, um, all those guys taught me how to play the game. I think um, it's something that's carried on with me for for the rest of my life. I've taught a lot of kids and coaches and uh, have been around the game enough now. I see so many things now that, that you know, if, if I was playing and, and doing some of those things now, uh, or back then, they would accept that, you know. They accept that, you know, you have to know your role, you have to know how to play the game, and then you have to know what to do in your role. And I think the Calgary game was a good, it was a good basis for me. And now when I'm out coaching or talking to folks about um, what's going on with some of the teams and even some of the major league teams now, um, there are things that, that need to happen that, that make you a better ball club. If you look at some of the, the teams that are winning, they do those things. And, and um, I think I was just very fortunate to have been brought up by by guys that, that knew the game and played the game from their heart and played the game win and, and knew what it took to do that. No, very true, man. Now, was there, was there a player on that team in particular that you learned the most from or maybe one player you could point out to to say, you know, this this guy in particular made me a better ball player? Well, yeah, you know, as a whole, I think, I mean, the whole group was a, was a very special group. I think Sarge Gary Matthews was one of those people that, that, you know, he kind of goes out of his way to explain certain things to you, so that helped out a lot. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, but all of them, I sit with my lockers right next to Mike Smith, and, uh, you know, Smith and I talked a lot about the game, and, and um, you know, he, he carried a, a special place with me because we played on the same side of the infield and, and for several years we did and um, uh, I think it, it, as a whole the Phillies organization and the fans of Philadelphia are great and I mean they, they, they expect a certain quality of play and effort and uh, more expecting I'd say expect a more demand of a certain quality of play and, and without uh, without Getting too much into that, I think you know the Philly fans and 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 the media and the uh, and the uh, and the organization itself just expect a certain standard, and if you can't fulfill that standard, you won't be there long. And you know, fortunately, I was there from '83 to '89, and and uh, I had a really good time. I, I really loved playing there. I, I learned a lot. I kind of took for granted a few things, uh, like the first year when I, we went to the World Series. Um, I thought that's just what it was. I mean. He calls the big league boom here in the playoffs in the World Series. That's, uh, you know, uh, you never know until you go through a couple more seasons and you don't even get close or you're, you know, you, you, you 
No, and I tell you, you get you get into something real important there. And once again, it's John Pialli, here for Major League infielder Steve Jouts. You know, you go, you know, you, you your team gets to the World Series the first year, you're up in the majors, and then after that, the team, uh, you know, a lot a lot of the veteran players end up moving on. Of course, you still have Schmidt. Schmidt ends up winning the MVP of the National League in 1986. But you know, the 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 quality of the team kind of goes down a little bit. You don't necessarily have the talent all around that you had, let's say, in the 1983 season. Um, how, how, how are you able to deal as you get up and you get, you know, more established in the 84, the 85, and the 86 seasons, you know, knowing that maybe, you know, as much as you want to see the team win and you could see a scenario where the best-case scenario would be a winning season, that, you know, it ends up just not, not coming to a fruition? Well, you know, I think I think one very important part of that first team that I played on was those, those guys played together, and they were all veteran players. I mean, there were players, there were so many leaders on that team. Gary Maddox, Gary Matthews, uh, you know, you have guys like that that are around you, Bo Diaz. Um, then you have a great pickup staff with Steve Carlton, Jerry Kuzman, John Denny, and among others. You know, we had rookies come up, Kevin Gross, and then they guys that could, they could throw the ball. Um, I think being able to play together and the guys knew what their role were and they knew how to handle that role. And, you know, basically what they told me is, you know, I was a little frustrated because all the way through when I was playing ball um, growing up and I was the, I was number four hitter or number three hitter and I was I, I did a lot of home runs and I did that but you know they told me you're in this number eight hole and you need to you have a job to do in the number eight hole. You know, two outs, nobody on, you know, three and one, two and oh, you're taking pitches because we don't want to start the, the next inning with the pitcher. You know, they were starting with two outs and then on the other hand with with runners in scoring position and, and two outs they're gonna try to pitch around you so you try to get hit on bad pitches. You know, if you're a selfish ball player your average is gonna be your average will will stay up and you you won't do those things but if you want to win like we did do then you do those things you get on base you get the pitcher out of the way and those are just things that you have to do and I think they taught me the roles and how to play the roles and what it took to be on a winning ball club and the sacrifices that you have to make you cannot be a selfish ball player I think you'll see that in in the game now that um, if you if you have teams that are winning you don't have guys that are selfish they're all looking out for each other and they're trying to do things to make the team better and to help the team win, and I think that's the most important thing. I think that's been lost over the years, and and um, as far as the, the years following after that first season, um, I think we had pretty good ball clubs. Uh, we had a real good year uh, against the middle of the Mets won it, uh, but we had the only winning record in the National League against the Mets, so we came in second place, and, and uh, we, we actually swept them uh, when they were trying to clinch in Philadelphia, and they had to leave. Uh, to go and, and, and clinch, but we had a really good year that year, and we had a ball club that I think, you know, if somebody else would have beaten that that year, we would have been right there in the playoffs in World Series. No, very true, and I tell you, you get to that 1986 season, which I'll get to in a second, but, uh, you know, between the 85 and 86 season coming up to it, uh, you make the decision to, to learn how to switch hit. You know, a lot of a lot of players come in, you know, before that, and and you know, just you either are or you aren't. What what led to your your decision to become a switch hitter, and how hard was it to make that transition? Well, you know, that was a tough one. I, I, the reporters came to me after the season and and said, "Well, so they said they're going to go out and get them left-handed hitting shortstop. What are you going to do?" <laughs> so I said, "Well, I said, I guess I'm going to go home and teach myself how to hit left-handed." And I didn't know what I was saying, and nobody in the game had ever done that at that level, as far as I knew. And they made a headline about that one, that I made that statement, but I meant it when I said it. So I came home and. Uh, I went up to the, I'm, I'm from Lawrence, Kansas. I went up to the University of Kansas where I played ball at, and and uh, I put on two pairs of batting gloves and, and had my cousin turn on the machine, and and I got on the left side and I just started swinging, and yeah, I got used to, I got used to. Uh, Getting on the left side, it took about two months, to, and then I went to spring training, and and uh, the first that we were playing, matter of fact, we were playing Royals, and, and the first at bat that I had from a right-handed pitcher on the left side of the plate, the first pitch that came in there, it just like threw me because I had never seen a live pitch I'd been hit off the machine. So you know it was kind of strange being on that side, and I think that at bat, um, I think I had a home run foul. 
and, and then I struck out. And the guys were kind of laughing at me. You know, they were like, well, I look at this, he's going to get left-handed. And then I, think it, I ended up in spring training that year. I got the great reward in spring training that year. I hit like 426, and I was a little well. But I mean, just throughout my career, in the first, second, the seventh hole, whenever I got a chance to do that, um, I hit pretty well. Then you have a job to do in that eight hole, and that's what you do. Um, uh, so you don't worry about average at that point. You worry about getting on base and getting a pitcher out of the way of drive, drive, and runs when uh, when there's two outs and, and uh, the pitcher's coming up behind you as early in the game, and you know they're not going to pitch it for you, so you have to try and drive in the run. So, you know, you take you take kind of a beating in, in, in the average part of it, and, you know, people will tell you, oh, yeah, you just couldn't hit or something, and like, I laugh at that one. I'll say, well, I don't know anybody that's in the big league that can't hit, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, if you're educated about the game, you understand what the rules are, and, and uh, you learn how to play it, and it's a tough thing because, I mean, I was very humble in situations. You know, there are a lot of times I'm standing there 3-0 and and 2 and Martin. Three and one and two and zero, and and I wanted to go to hacking, but it was like I knew what I was supposed to do, so I didn't, you know. And it's just, um, it, it's about winning, and it's about being a team player, and I think, um, I think that's what's most important. I mean, I know in Philadelphia they want to win, and so did I. So I kind of went along with all that, and it all it worked out pretty well. Yeah, very true, man. Let's get Stop yelling here for Major League Shortstop Steve Jelts. Now, uh, you know, there's a, there's a game in uh, 1989. You, know, you end up hitting five home runs for your entire career. You hit two of them in the same game, a game you didn't even start against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, you know, take us a little bit of back back to that game because the Pirates had gotten out to a ten nothing lead, and you know, it turns out you know one of the broadcasters says, "Hey, if we lose this game, I'm walking home." You know, it ends up becoming a whole big story in itself. But you obviously had an integral part of that game, hitting a home run from each side of the plate. Um, tell tell us, you know, what you remember about that game, and you know how how nice it was to come down from a ten nothing deficit in the first inning. Well, I think um, it's funny that that game. Um, I came down from the locker room. I got up to the locker room in the first inning. It was so the first half inning was so long. They did score ten runs in the top of the first against us. And I came down and said, "Look, we got we had nine innings to get to get ten runs. So let's get started now." And you know, I was rooting the team on and. Um, uh, Tommy Kerr was playing second base, and he got his run at bat in that game, and Nick Lathan let him get out of there. And I know some of the guys were like, well, he can take this out with the rest of us, and, you know, I don't think Tommy had any problem doing that. But um, I said, no, that's okay. I'll play. I love to play. So I went out, and, and the biggest thing about that, the best thing about that was I was hitting in the number two hole. And I had three, four, five behind me, so I knew I was going to get some pitches. I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. So, you know, I, I think I first hit bat, I fought off uh, Bob Walker's pitches, and I fought off several pitches. I was only two before I threw it, and then I fought off several pitches and got a walk. And then the second time up, I was going to again before I threw it, and, and I, I just knew Bob was coming inside because he was in the Philly organization and was known he's a little somewhat of a headhunter. You know, Bob, he would let it go and come out to going to and get you off the plate so he could go away to get you out. And so I'm kind of thinking, okay, I fought him off this last time. This time he's going to get me off the plate so I can't bow these fastballs off or break them off on the outside part of the plate off. And, and uh, so I'm kind of leaning, I got this lean in my mind that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this pitch under my chin. And I kind of, when he, when he let it go, I leaned back just a little bit. And, and he hung a curveball right down the middle, and I hit him in the bullpen. And then uh, that was my uh, first home run. My second home run was uh, from the right side. And when I came up to the plate that time, uh, uh manager came out, I think it was Leland, came out and got took Walkie out and put John Smiley in there and moved me to the, to the right side of the plate. And he went 2-0 and to me, and, uh, and so I stood up a little bit more, 2-0, 3-1, and that count that I used to have to take in the 8-hole. I could swing the time, and, and he threw me a fastball right while I was looking, and, you know, lessons from God, I hit it, and I hit it well, and I didn't think it was going to go out. I, I probably one of the hardest balls I hit, and I hit it so high, I didn't think it was going to go out, and I was watching Barry Bonds drift back here in left field, and then it dropped in the bullpen on the other side, so that's how that happened. Nah, I tell you, it must have must have been an incredible game. What, what's the feeling after you 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 face like such adversity in that game? Because you know, I understand you know your point about hey, you got nine more innings to score ten runs, but it's still ten runs. I mean, you figure the average you know the average team's going to score somewhere between about three and six a game. So you know, you definitely got to step it up offensively to be able to compete with that. But you know, how, how are you how are you guys able to just come back in a game like that? Because let's be honest, it doesn't happen too often. 
Enjoyed that spot. Once again, Steve Jeltz does a very good job. He's actually uh, he he's does a lot with mentoring kids, so uh, you know it's something that you know I don't know if he's going to continue to do it, but he's done a very good job over the last several years helping a lot of young kids, you know, get you know get themselves straight, you know, both mentally and physically, and you know, obviously wish him the best of luck. Good guy there, and Steve Jeltz. So thanks for that spot there for Steve. And listen, we're going to take one more break. Be back with a lot more stuff going on. Bases empty blog coming up after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRRadio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio.
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to jump right into Bases Empty Blog here. And, of course, for those of you who don't know Bases Empty Blog, of course, that's uh, you know my own personal blog that I pretty much talk baseball about just about every day of the year. I write an article. We kind of do some research, and we get into some different things that have happened throughout the game. Some, you know, some happened a long time ago. Some of them are more conventional. And we're going to start out with something that happened a long time ago. And I want to get into this just about every year as we go forward because you talk about the history of the World Series and the World Series obviously has been around since 1903 and obviously there was championships before that and we could get into that and make a whole different thing about it but the first World Series was played in 1903 and that was you know, obviously 2003 when the uh, My- Florida Marlins played the New York Yankees that was a 100 year calendar anniversary of the first official World Series where the Boston Americans beat the Pittsburgh Pirates every year since then Really, for the exception of, of course, what will be, uh, was it uh, 2004 and eventually uh, was it 2094, the two, only two years where there was not a World Series happening. There's going to be a 100-year anniversary of a World Series, and the one that happened in 1913 featured the Philadelphia Athletics with Connie Mack and the New York Giants with John McGraw. And you look at really two of the, 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 the bigger-time managers of that whole generation, and they end up matching up against each other. It was a series in which the Athletics end up winning four games to one in a five-game series. Uh, amongst Hall of Famers in there, you had two umpires, Bill Clem and Tom Connolly, two of the better umpires considered for that generation, and obviously are both in baseball's Hall of Fame. But uh, what was very interesting and what I found fascinating about it is the first two games of the series featured Hall of Famers against each other. Christy Mathewson against Eddie Plank, Rube Marquard, against Chief Bender. And then, obviously, they faced off in the first two games of the series. Frank Home Run Baker, of course, ends up making the uh, the Hall of Fame. And, of course, pitcher Herb Pennock, Pennock who uh, ends up having a very good career, mostly after the 1913 season, ends up being part of that team but doesn't pitch in the series. And, of course, Eddie Collins, part of the, uh, the $100,000 infield with Stuffy McGinnis and Frank Baker and, of course, the uh, shortstop Jack Barry, you know, ends up making a Hall of Fame as well. So something very interesting to look at. And like I said, every year right now is going to be a 100-year anniversary of a World Series classic and a classic World Series. But, you know, moving on, we got the Pittsburgh Pirates, who obviously made, we talked about earlier, made the trade for Marlon Byrd and John Buck earlier this week. And obviously it looks like they're only a couple games away from getting over that hump of 20 years about having a winning season. They're going to win game number 81 and 82 and eventually should take themselves to the playoffs. And one of the guys that has had a big hand in the Pittsburgh Pirates' success this year has been left-hander Francisco Liriano. And Francisco Liriano, we know about his arm. He's had issues throughout his career, whether it was with the Minnesota Twins or you know, kind of up and down. He had the Tommy John surgery. But you know, at the moment of this broadcast, 14-5, and 5, 253 ERA, 126 strikeouts and 121 innings. He's got a whip of 1.182. And what is significant about that is Lariano's up and down part of his career has had a lot to do with his control. And he's had some very good seasons. He had the breakout season that he had in uh, 2005 when he went 12-3 and with a 216 ERA in 26 games, 16 starts, 144 Ks and 121 innings. He finished third in the AL Rookie of the Year award. Of course, the Tommy John surgery he had after that had a big impact on his road to coming back. But he ends up struggling for a little while, uh, you know, as uh, you know, he, he struggled. You know, was six and four, three ninety one, and fourteen starts in two thousand eight. Two thousand nine was five and thirteen with a five eighty ERA in twenty four starts. But two thousand ten, he broke out again. Was fourteen and ten, three sixty two ERA in thirty one starts. He had a career high two hundred one Ks, one hundred ninety one and two thirds innings pitched. Gave up just nine home runs. Twenty five, he gave up a year earlier, one point two six WHIP. But he's struggled, obviously, since the last couple seasons, and it hasn't worked out for him in his best interest. And, yeah, obviously, what, is, what, is, what has been the major cause of him coming back and performing at this level? To me, it's control. You know, you talk about him being healthy. You talk about him having the ability to be that type of guy. But the problem is, is his, la- his lack of control led to his struggles. And when he's thrown the ball over the plate, 
you could see as what's happened this season, then he has an obvious chance to be not only a good pitcher, but a very good pitcher. So, you know, that's something that has to be looked at in regards to Francisco Lariano. Moving on, of course, you have a situation which happened three years ago this past week. And that's the that would have been the birthday of former Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim pitcher Nick Adenhart. And Nick, of course, was killed in a car accident right after making his first start of the season in April in 2009. And, you know, kind of a sad situation and, of course, you know, obviously a situation where, you know, the Angels seemed to rally around him when they won the division that year. They obviously put his name up there, you know, where it's on the board and took a picture with it. But a situation where a guy who really got got himself to a situation where he could establish himself as a major league pitcher made the starting rotation of the Angels that season. A lot of hard work paid off. And, you know, ends up throwing six scoreless innings the day before. And it ends up getting killed tragically in that car accident. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, some something that, you know, nobody wants to go through. A 22-year-old kid right in the, before the prime of his career, he ends up getting taken. A very sad situation. And, of course, the six scoreless innings he threw before that. 14th round draft pick of the uh, Anaheim Angels in 2004. He had gotten injured. He needed Tommy John surgery in the 2004 season. Of course, it affected his placement in the draft, but he was still taken in the 14th round. He could have been a guy that was taken maybe in the second or third round of that draft, but you know, even with the operation, was given a bonus like a second round pick would have gotten. But he saw a stock rise during the 2006 season. He went 15 and 4, 256 ERA, and 25 starts from the rookie league to the A level. And then he came into the 2008 season. He was ranked as the 28th overall prospect by Baseball America. And, you know, had a down season in AAA as he made the adjustment in the 2000, uh, what was it, 2008 season, but made his major league debut. He didn't pitch that well in those three starts. And that's what made everything that he was going through in 2009 a little more significant. It seemed he was able to go out there and finally establish himself. And he made the rotation that year. The Angels were certainly counting on him to be, you know, either a three or four starter in their rotation, through to six scoreless innings. And, of course, you know, the sad accident, which ends up taking his life. But, you know, it was, a, you know, it, the, the fact that he had a, you know, he had, he had a bad finish to the 2008 season. And obviously what happens in 2009 is even worse. And, you know, the Angels will always remember him. And he does deserve a place in baseball history. Here's a guy that, you know, didn't get a chance to pitch in a major league. His life was taken certainly way earlier than it possibly should have. So, you know, rest in peace, Nick Adenhart. Something that you remember would have been his 27th birthday this past week. But moving on, we got... Three managers in Major League Baseball, three managers in the American League that, in my opinion, could be on a hot seat as we get towards the end of September here, and obviously August into September, and you got the situation going on with the Angels, and, you know, you think with Mike Socha, he's probably a guy that could be out by the time this season ends. It's either him or Jerry DePoto. You talk about the issues that they've had between the two of them, and here's, a, you know, a guy that probably you know, very well could be gone after this season. And Mike Socia, it may not be all his fault, may not be all Jerry DePoto's fault, but it's, a, you know, something that's certainly to blame for what's happened with the Angels. The Angels got up to a bad start last year but finished up with 89 wins. Uh, could have made the playoffs in other seasons, but at least they said they had 89 wins to get off of. It's not going to be the case this season. Signing a Josh Hamilton, the moves they made, uh, bringing in Jason Vargas for Kendry Morales, and the other moves that they made have not worked out this season, and somebody probably is going to have to pay. And you can make the case that it might be Mike Socia over Jerry DePoto because DePoto's only been here a couple years himself. And, you know, you look at the way things have worked out, and, you know, maybe DePoto deserves another year, maybe he doesn't. Maybe DePoto's the reason why the Angels have gotten themselves into the situation that they have. But the Angels, I'll tell you, when, if and when they decide to replace Mike Socia, they, they got to find a better guy. And it's going to be hard to do that because Mike Socia has been one of the top managers in Major League Baseball and is a guy that's not going to go very far before getting another job in the Major League. There's probably maybe four, five, six teams that will replace their current manager with Mike Socia if he was available. 
So moving on, you know, we talked about Eric Wedge with the Seattle Mariners. And the Mariners are in a tough situation where their general manager could be on the end of his tenure in Seattle. Jack Zarednik has uh, you know, done a good job bringing in some young players, but a lot of the young players haven't panned out. You know, he's got some good pitching this year from King Felix, from Ashashi Iwakuma. A couple of the other young pitchers have started to establish themselves. But guys like Dustin Ackley and Kyle Seeger and uh, what do you call him, Michael Saunders, you know, some of the guys that they've penciled in to be legitimate uh, major league hitters have not gotten a job done. Jesus Montero. You know, so this is a situation where the Mariners are going to be thinking about maybe replacing Zarednik, but they may not. And they may go and decide to replace their manager and Eric Wedge, who may not be too long for the job. And the reason that I, I, would, I would recommend or maybe say a possibility that they may make a move like this is the fact that maybe they bring in another manager to kind of see how he gels with his group. And if uh, they could get a better feel going into the 2014 season, I think it will be a, a, a logical situation. That's why I think Eric Wedge could be on the hot seat in Seattle. Moving forward, the Toronto Blue Jays. In my opinion, if you look at the many disappointments that there have been for this season, whether it's the Los Angeles Dodgers start, whether it's been the Washington Nationals or the Philadelphia Phillies or the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, there probably hasn't been a bigger disappointment than what you've seen from the Toronto Blue Jays and their organization this year. Uh, they made a lot, put a lot of stock in a deal that they made with the Marlins when they brought in Jose Reyes and Josh Johnson and guys like that. They made the R.A. Dickey trade with the New York Mets. And they were put in a situation where you thought, with the American League East, as competitive as it was going to be, that the, the, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays could be a team that could be that best team. They could go to the top. They could get the job done and win that division. It hasn't worked out this year. They got off to a terrible start. They've played you know, bad baseball over the last couple weeks or so after getting off to a little bit of a run. And let's be honest, the Blue Jays are looking forward for next year. They're not necessarily looking to get younger. They're looking to take another run with the group of players that they have. An offensive centerpiece which centers around Jose Reyes and Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion. They're going forward with that. They're going forward with their pitching staff with guys like R.A. Dickey and maybe even Josh Johnson and Mark Burley and an injured Brandon Mora. So the Blue Jays are going to be about 2014. They're not going to take a step back. They're not going to go and rebuild this whole thing after Alex Antropolis has gone out there and made the moves to make themselves a legitimate contending team. That leaves one thing, the manager. John Gibbons had a chance to manage the Blue Jays for a, a series of years before. Ends up being brought back this past season. It obviously hasn't worked out. John Farrell got a lot more out of the pitching staff than John Gibbons has since he has come back. John Gibbons will be at a scapegoat. He will probably be let go at the end of this season. In my opinion, they may be better off parting ways with him right now. They, you know, they've they got like a Tory Lavallo who's down in the minor leagues. Maybe somebody else to kind of get a better pulse of what this team is going to be going into the 2014 season. So I think those are things that all have to be looked at. I would think that if there was one manager in Major League Baseball that the team could benefit from changing and going in a different direction, it would be John Gibbons in Toronto. And I think the Toronto Blue Jays would be better off seeing the way the team is run from a different manager's perspective as opposed to going with Gibbons for the rest of the season, who is likely out once the season ends anyway. But that's all on Bases Empty Blog this week. want to thank everybody for tuning in to the program. want to thank Glenn Wilson. want to thank Brian Dorsett. want to also thank Steve Jeltz for being part of the program. Stay tuned, MTR Radio. Of course, there's a lot of great programming. And we'll definitely catch up with you next week on a Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you by JohnPielli.com.